Oh, good morning. And uh, those joining us from home, live streaming, good to see you as well. Uh, I don't know how many people use Google Photos. You probably heard a few weeks ago, I talked about how I made the shift from Apple to Android. So anyway, Google's my world now, obviously. Google Photos, and they probably do this on Apple, I can't remember, but with Google Photos, it's really handy, isn't it? Because every so often, or actually almost every day, they'll remind you daily of some of the things that happened you know, in the past. So um, five years ago, you did this, three years ago. So just popping up on my feed this morning, for example. Um, four years ago, I, I was riding uh, my bike with, with James Ho. You guys remember James, our student minister in Jindabyne. It was really fun, um, good times. But recently though, not today, but recently, there have been reminders from about two years ago on Google Photos, and it hasn't been that good. Now, if you remember the summer of 2019 to 2020, there were basically three disasters that followed one after the other. So the first photo is, that's pretty much the, the sun in the middle of the, the sky, but it was like that because of those terrible bushfires. You remember the terrible bushfires? Worst in a generation in New South Wales happened um, in 2019, 2020 in summer. And then um, almost straight afterwards, we had these floods and storms. That's a tree that fell over on our street. In fact, one fell over in our front yard. And then, of course, we don't need reminding of plenty of photos come up about the start of COVID and lockdown. Google has been very helpful to remind me of all of that recently, all in the last two years. So it's no surprise, therefore, that uh, the doomsday clock, I don't know if you've heard about the doomsday clock, a group of scientists for the last 75 years, every year, um, use the doomsday clock as a, as a symbolic way of gauging how close we are to destroying the world as humanity. Okay, and when you get to midnight, it's supposed to be pretty much over. Well, for the last two years, believe it or not, we have been closer to midnight than ever before. It used to advance or retreat in minutes. Now we're talking about seconds. Since 2020, we've been 100 seconds to midnight. That's how close we are in their minds, and they're all reputable scientists, a lot of them Nobel Prize winners, how close we are to destroying the world. Pandemic, now threat of war, Russia, Ukraine, China, climate change, we are closer than ever to the dreaded midnight. So how can you experience peace in this kind of world with the kind of last two years that we've been having? I mean, short of living in denial, living in a hole somewhere, or maybe an artificial drug-induced state of mind, how in the world can anyone experience peace? Well, today, as we have been doing for the last two weeks, I want to ask you to consider Jesus, because Jesus offers a peace in a world like ours, and he's been doing it for over 2,000 years. Now, I just want to take you to where I'm heading with this, and I want to do it with a picture. So I'm going to reveal where we're heading with this picture. In fact, this picture, uh, a print of it used to hang in our living room. That's where we want to end up. You see this famous picture of a lighthouse? You've probably seen it before. You've got the waves crashing all around, and huge waves. But you've got this lighthouse standing firm. Seems everything is okay. But what's really interesting is actually the lighthouse keeper at the door. Because if you look closely, and I don't have a close-up of it, if you look closely, he's standing there at the door, and he's like this. He's got his hands in his pocket. He's relaxed. 
That's a pretty good picture of peace, isn't it? And that's where we want to end up. Now, how are we going to get there? Firstly, we're going to look at how we usually look for peace or experience peace in the world that we live in. And we're going to look at a pretty fragile way of doing it. Firstly, by looking at facts and then feelings. So firstly, facts. A lot of good and helpful advice um, when it comes to anxiety, whether anxiety in general or those with anxiety disorders in particular, um, a lot of good helpful advice will point us to, well, you need to remember the facts, what's true. Because when your subjective feelings are overwhelming, it's important to focus on objective truth. And look, anxiety disorders are this prevalent. One in four Australians at some point in their lives, one in four of us, will suffer from anxiety. So this is really important advice, isn't it? Because facts can give us perspective and not allow the worries to take over. And so one uh, very popular and effective uh, psych treatment is cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, which essentially trains us to have our minds think about the facts overriding some of the feelings we might have. So you can do this, for example, with facts about coronavirus, with COVID. Um, it's helpful, isn't it, to remember, for example, the, the current strain that we're um, suffering, Omicron. Well, it's, you know, very infectious, but on the whole, it's not as bad in terms of um, symptoms, and especially with children, especially with young people. And especially as we now move to... Uh, an endemic stage, from pandemic to endemic, we just kind of live with it, um, to remember that it's, you know, especially with vaccination, it's not going to be that much worse than the flu. So facts will hopefully cause us not to panic. Well, at least that's what we're told, isn't it? Facts. However, though, I want to say just relying on facts, well, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, right? Because sometimes facts are worse than your feelings. Like, it's one thing to say facts are better and help you calm your feelings, but what if facts are worse than your feelings? Like, what if you are on the Titanic, and you probably all know that initially when the Titanic began to sink, people were like, oh, this is a Titanic, it's not, not, nothing's going to happen. And so they were whining and dining and playing music. Well, the fact was, you've got an hour to get on a lifeboat, and there are not enough lifeboats, all right? The facts cuts both ways. When you realize the facts is worse than your feelings, it's pretty bad. Or let's take a recent example, climate change. Climate change, the science is pretty clear. Things are not looking good, especially for our children and our children's children. Facts are worse than how most people feel. And it is also the case with facts, many facts, that they are open to revision. Like a lot of times, our data has to catch up with where we are. So I'll give you an example. This coronavirus myths versus facts came at the beginning of 2020, before lockdown. And, you know, there's some good things to it, but there's at least a couple of things that you kind of question now two years on, like the fact that coronavirus is not worse than the flu. The flu is actually the death toll tells another, another, um, another story. But also remember at the beginning of 2020, oh, you don't need to wear masks. Just make sure you wash your hands, okay? Facts have needed to be revised over the last two years. But probably most of all is this when it comes to peace. Facts are cold, Facts are cold. If you believe in cold, hard science to give peace, you're generally not going to find it, especially if you are an atheist. Or I'll give you an example of Richard Dawkins, the atheist scientist. Look what he says there. It's all facts, right? If you're an atheist in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, 
and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now, maybe for Richard Dawkins, that gives him a sense of peace, but for most people, that's pretty cold, isn't it? It doesn't lead to peace. So this one is a fragile kind of peace, isn't it? Just relying on cold facts. Well, what about the next one? What about feelings? This time, we're prioritizing how you feel on the inside, so inner peace over what's happening outside. An example is um, Eastern religions and spirituality, as well as a lot of self-help. Right? Even if the world out there is falling apart, you can experience and cultivate peace by getting in the right heart and mindset. So four steps to achieving peace in, in, in Zen Buddhism. Number one, sit and meditate. Number two, be mindful of the present. Number three, cultivate compassion. Number four, find happiness from within. Now, I want to say this can be really helpful. Like if you've ever tried it, something like that, when you're in a panic, or it can calm the mind. It can calm you in the midst of anxiety, right? That's a good thing. But there are limits to it, right? This relying on feelings. For example, recently you know about the Tongan volcano and the tsunami, the volcano eruption that causes tsunami. So I read about 74-year-old village man, Mr. Latu, who lost his fishing boat, and most of the fishing boats in the village were destroyed. Those who still have fishing boats aren't going to go out fishing for the fear of the toxic ash levels in the sea. So we've got this man whose village, his main source of food and income, completely lost overnight, which is why there's been humanitarian efforts to fly food and medical aid in. Now, if the advice you give to someone in that situation is sit and meditate and find inner peace, that seems a little insensitive and naive, doesn't it? And the other problem with this feelings, inner peace, just become sort of advice is it can be an excuse to do nothing when you actually need to do something in the face of crisis. Like, don't worry, be happy. In the face of climate change is actually probably our problem. That's morally irresponsible. So you guys heard of Greta Thunberg mobilizing kids to be angry. I mean, she's angry. But that's part of the point. You need to be angry. You need to be worked up about it if you understand the facts. Climate change is going to be so serious. And isn't that the right reaction? So a feeling-centered approach to finding peace can be at times irresponsible, insensitive, but also probably personally quite fragile. So where to from here? What is a better, less fragile firmer place to find peace when we live in a world like ours. Well, that passage that um, we read out earlier, that Doug read out from Romans chapter 8, that's part of the Bible, but it's also a historical document. If you're not familiar with reading the Bible, this is a letter written by St. Paul to Christians in the ancient capital Rome in the first century AD. Now, even if you don't believe that the Bible is God's Word, let's just look at it as a historical document. And you can see just by looking at it like that, that these are early Christians talking about a frame of mind and feelings that is actually tremendously attractive. What are they basing their peace on? 
Even if you look at it from that angle. Let's have a look at what he says again. Those final few verses, he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, do you hear the conviction there? I mean, do you feel the power of this kind of peace? Like, even if you don't believe what he believes, it's enviable, isn't it? Like, you want this, even if you don't believe it. You want to believe it. I do. Because this is actually a little bit of a glimpse, a window into the peace that followers of Jesus, that Christians can have, and shows us what it's based on. And that is not fragile that it's actually firm. And the key is really the last sentence, okay? The basis for this kind of peace is this, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because in that sentence, I want to tell you, are both facts and feelings. But it rests on a far better foundation than what I've talked about so far. Okay, the first half, the love of God, if you like, taps into the feelings, subjectively feeling loved. But the second half are facts in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian peace puts both together, the love of God, feelings, in Christ Jesus our Lord, facts. So let's have a look at these first. I'll do it in reverse. Let's look at facts first, then feelings. Um, Not yet. Okay, so the peace here we're talking about is grounded in objective truths, right? The Bible's objective truths that have to do with a person who existed in history, and these things are verifiable. Um, By the way, if you're a skeptic, you need to know that Jesus of Nazareth, as someone who existed, that's pretty much not contested by academics in ancient history departments, whether they're Christians or not. That is something that even non-Christian, atheistic, very skeptical ancient historians concede he existed. But you see, more than exist, there are other, book claim, other claims about Jesus that are testable, that are the basis for objective facts for the Christian. Now, not every non-Christian ancient historic historian will believe these things, but we can at least say we will be able to test them. Okay, These are the testable key facts um, about Jesus And these are the things that the Bible talks about. Number one, Jesus came into the world claiming to be God and claiming to be this broken world's rightful ruler and king. That's a fact statement, testable. Number two, Jesus lived and loved as God would have lived and loved. Number three, Jesus faced and conquered anxiety and fear with power and peace. Number four, Jesus died as an innocent man in the place of the guilty. Number five, Jesus rose again and is alive today. Okay, these are all testable, verifiable, historical claims. As a consequence, though, there are a couple of other really important things for our topic. And that is, if this is all true, one to five, Jesus promises to be with his people, work everything for their ultimate good and to give them peace. And number seven, Jesus promises to return as the broken world's rightful ruler and king to completely fix all that's wrong with it. Now, 
I know in this short talk, I won't be able to convince you that these are objectively true and historically believable. Okay, I just want to present the fact that these are fact claims. These are truth claims. And I'm going to invite you to maybe investigate further. Find out more. There's a link at the bottom that's to questions. Please ask questions. But also, as I said last week, this is also an opportunity for you to pop down in the second question of that link. Just your personal details, and it'll be confidential, but we will, I'll be able to get in touch with you to kind of point you in the right direction. If you want to find out more, for example, we're going to run Alpha Course in my home in a couple of months' time, and that would be a great opportunity for you to find out more. So please investigate. Please test it. But the point I'm trying to make simply here is this. Christianity, unlike a lot of other religions, actually stands or falls on objective truth claims. Like, if those things are shown to be false, especially the first five, Christianity is false. And no matter how you feel, if they're false, then your feelings are lying to you, okay? There's not many religions like Christianity that stands or falls on objective historical facts. Take, for example, Buddhism or Hinduism. It really doesn't matter. Okay? But with Christianity, it does. All right, so that's facts. Remember, though, we're also thinking about feelings. That first half of the passage is, the, the verse is, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, I want to show you that at the heart of that Romans 8 passage is love. That there's a conviction and a peace that comes from being loved by God. And you see it all throughout, won't you? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Or 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So those facts about Jesus, it's not cold facts. Those facts about who Jesus is and what he does, it's all motivated from love. Why did Jesus come? Why did he live? Why did he die? Why did he rise? It's because of love. Yeah, love motivated God to do all of it. Verse 32, it said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You see, here's the Bible storyline. Bible storyline is this, that there's a brokenness inside me and outside of me that is so severe that it would actually take God to come and enter into this world, to die in my place in order to heal that brokenness. Okay, now I'm going to speak about that more next week. And also, again, if you come along to Alpha later on. But if that's this Bible storyline, then you see that the, why Christians believe that there is no love like this love. That God would bother doing that for the sake of the brokenness that we actually caused. And such is this love that is if you experience this love, it changes everything and it actually will genuinely give you an experience of peace. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus, not a Christian yet, you can actually see how love might be linked to experiencing peace, right? In the midst of anxiety. I mean, just think, for example, of a child in the arms of a parent in the midst of a crisis. They don't know what's going on, but as mum or dad hugs them and says, don't worry, I love you, you're safe, that for the child can be such an experience of peace, can't it? Like we, we get that. Love and peace seem to go together. But I want to say that God's love, as described in the Bible, actually goes a step beyond that. Because remember, God's love is in 
Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love is that subjective experience that can conquer inner fears. But remember, it's grounded on what? Objective, testable, verifiable truths. See, as good as it is for the parent calming the child because she or he feels loved, well, if the parent is calming the child as a volcanic tsunami hits, honestly, no matter what they say to the child and reassure the child, they can't guarantee that everything will be okay, yeah? Because they have no objective power to back it up. So while the child might be feeling okay, the parent can't be as sure. But the love of God is different. Because the love of God, according to the Bible, really does conquer all. Again, because it's grounded on these objective facts about Jesus. Investigate, test. You see, why is it that um, Romans 8, the passage we read, talks about how neither death nor life, or angels or demons, or present or future, or any powers, why is it that neither height nor depth nor anything else in creation can separate us from God's love? Again, it's because it's in Christ Jesus. So think about this. Jesus, remember, we said, died and rose again. And if this is true, facts, then death and life cannot separate us from God's love. Jesus disarmed the accusation and power of Satan by dying for us. And if that's true, then no angels or demons can separate us from God's love. If Jesus really did, as the Bible says, go into the depths of hell and rose again to the heights of heaven, well, then no height nor depth can separate us from the love of God. And if Jesus really is the Lord over all creation, as he showed in his life, in his miracles, in his death and resurrection, well, if this is true, then nothing in creation can separate. You see, if God loves you, then he is for you. And if he is for you, then who can be against you? You see, there is nothing more important to having peace in an anxious world than to know that you are loved by God and that nothing can separate you from his love. So on to my final point. Let's find peace. If there's one thing good that comes out of anxiety and fear is that anxiety and fear reveals Anxiety can actually be a good thing because it reveals what you value and cherish the most. Because you're always going to be anxious about what you value, right? What you fear losing. I mean, if you value and cherish money or material things, your hope and your peace will be easily dashed. If you value relationships and family, well, your peace will be rocked when they are under threat or they're lost. If you value your life, then about of near death, or cancer diagnosis will take all of that away. And I wonder, therefore, what is your sense of peace? Because you might be here today not feeling very rattled at all. You might be saying, yeah, Pete, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I'm feeling pretty peaceful. I don't feel particularly anxious. Well, don't wait till anxiety comes to reveal what it's based on, because if it's not based on something firm, at some point, you're going to be rattled. But here's the thing. Today, God is offering you something more precious, more firm than nothing in this world or in the next can ever take away. And that is his love. Let me tell you about Horatio G. Spafford. Horatio Spafford lived in the 19th century. He was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago, had a lovely family. That's his wife, Anna. They had five daughters. However, 
Over a period of two years, and by the way, if you think our last two years were rough, he, let me tell you about his two years. He experienced multiple tragedies in the space of just two years. So in 1871, their young son died of pneumonia. In that same year, this successful Chicago businessman, well, the great Chicago fire happened and much of his business was lost. And then the unthinkable happened. On the 21st of November, 1873, the French ocean liner, Ville du Havre, was crossing the Atlantic from the U.S. to Europe. It had 313 passengers on board, and among the passengers was Mrs. Spafford and their four daughters. Although Horatio had planned to go with his family, he had to stay in Chicago to fix up some business, and so he said to his wife, you go first with the kids, and I'll join you a bit later. His plan was to take another ship. Well, about four days into the crossing of the Atlantic, the ocean liner collided with a powerful iron-hulled Scottish ship called the Loch Urn. Suddenly, all of the people on board were in grave danger. Anna hurriedly brought her four daughters to the deck of the ship, and there she knelt with Annie, Maggie, Bessie, and Tanetta and prayed with them. Within approximately 12 minutes, the ship slipped beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic. Back in Chicago, Spafford heard about the accident. He was waiting for news, any news from his wife. Eventually, a telegram came through from Wales days later. And the telegram read this, Saved alone, what shall I do? All four of their daughters drowned. Spafford booked passage on the next available ship to go to Wales to join his grieving wife who had been rescued. About four days into that journey, the captain, knowing what had happened to the ship and also what had happened to Spafford and his family, called Spafford into the cabin, the captain's cabin, and as they went over the place where the ship collided, the captain said, here, this is where it happened. And so you imagine there, Spafford is there in the captain's cabin, sailing past the very spot where 226 people, including his four precious daughters, perished. And it's said that at that very spot, Spafford was moved to write something, a poem, And the poem said this, When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. How could could anyone have this kind of peace? Within the space of two years, he lost all five of his children. Four of them in one freak accident. How could he have this kind of peace? Well, I'll tell you how. Because it was grounded in something something big. It was grounded in facts. Um, You see that lighthouse picture? Why could the lighthouse keeper be so relaxed? 
It's because there's a massive, strong lighthouse that he's standing behind. Without that strong lighthouse, his feelings of peace is just an illusion. Well, why could Spafford say, it is well with my soul? Well, let me show you another verse of the poem he wrote. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ, facts, hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Friends, Jesus offers you today a peace that everyone longs for, but only he can really give. Will you accept it? If so, I'm going to pray, and you might want to pray along with me. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to experience the peace that you offer. Forgive me for all that I've done that separates myself from you. And thank you that you dying on the cross means that I can be forgiven. And that now nothing can separate me from your love ever again. Please come into my life and help me walk with you through whatever might come my way. Amen.